Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now, it's just over two weeks ago that Salman Rushdie was attacked in New York. I'm delighted that my guest this week is an expert in radicalization and terrorism. Wasik Wasik is a fellow of the Henry Jackson Society. He's also a specialist in anti-Semitism. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I wanted to start because this week, just gone, you held a, a kind of event, didn't you, for Salman Rushdie? Can you tell me what that was? Sure. Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, no, it's a I pleasure. <laughs> I think the first thing is that uh, um, my thoughts go out to Salman Rushdie and, and his family, and I, I wish him all the best in a quick recovery. Now, the event that uh, we, I was part of is uh, known as the I Stand With Salman uh, event. And uh, this is uh, essentially a symbolic event to show solidarity to Salman Rushdie in the face of uh, religious fundamentalists who are seeking to prevent those from uh, uh, expressing themselves uh, freely in a free society. And so I delivered a speech there um, to push back against uh, some of these religious fundamentalists uh, who I believe are a threat to our democracy, a threat to the West. And the threat that they pose, in my view, is not one of legality, but it's one through the back door. So essentially what they're trying to do is to threaten people from being able to express themselves without needing to have a blasphemy law. So essentially it's blasphemy through the back door. And this is essentially what my um, speech was about. Well, I think it's sort of almost undeniable that we are living with an unofficial blasphemy law, aren't we now? Mm -hmm. I mean, were, were you, when it came to the instant, uh, the attack on Salman Rushdie, have you been uh, encouraged or discouraged by the general response to it? I think there's two things that we need to put into perspective. Yes, of course, uh, the fatwa, which is a religious edict that was um, assigned to Salman Rushdie has uh, since 1988 been um, applied to, to Salman and it hasn't been um, rescinded. Um, so I'm disappointed that we haven't had religious leaders um, actually rescinding this or uh, negating this fatwa. So this life, so this fatwa has essentially been live for all this time and therefore Salman's um, life has always been on the line as a result of this. Yeah. But also I am encouraged by other things. Um, what I have seen, at least in the Muslim community, and it's a diverse community, we're not a homogenous block, we're not a monolith, is that uh, when it does come to matters of blasphemy, what we don't see is the whole of the Muslim community out there protesting against it. What we do see, however, is a minority of religious fundamentalists who are out there protesting against it. Now, the problem with some of these protests is that there are elements of extremism there where they're threatening violence, where they're threatening to do things against people who um, do um, or express themselves freely, whether it's reading the book or promoting it or, or selling it. And so it is mixed. And I think there is a lot of work that needs to be done uh, in terms of um, free, freedom of speech and freedom of expression. You know, I, I saw actually a, a tweet you put out, which caught my eye. This is a while ago. Um, and it was basically during the time where the various groups were um, uh, picketing Cineworld uh, over the, the, the film recently that they thought was insulting. Um, and indeed, there was a guy, there was a clip of a guy, I think it was in Birmingham, 
um, talking about how there will be repercussions. We have been trained to make sure, you know, and it was a very much like a threat. And you said something along the lines of that this is what we are up against. I mean, do you, how widespread do you think that is? I think it's widespread amongst a minority of um, fundamentalists within the Muslim yeah. community, <clears throat> and they are shouting the loudest. And what they are doing is uh, essentially uh, representing themselves as uh, the, the go-to people, the spokespeople for a community. And when I saw that clip, it was quite troubling because as far as I know, nothing has been done about it. And as far as I could tell mm. from that clip, it very much appears to be a threat. Yep. And when we put it into, con uh, into context, the film that you're referring to, The Lady of Heaven, this was made by a minority Shia sect. So it's a minority within the sect of Shia and uh, Shia are a sect within the um, Muslim community. And um, so they got to put pushback within their own community and also from the Sunni community, which is the, the biggest Muslim sect that we currently have globally. And uh, as part of that, what, um, what we saw was that although we didn't see uh, a lot of pushback from the whole of the Muslim community, a minority of that community were allowed to speak on behalf of them and to get that film taken down from cinemas. And so cin cinemas across the country weren't able to actually show this uh, mm -hmm. movie because they weren't aware, or at least apart, uh, they, they would have done some sort of risk assessment and mm -hmm. assessed that this risk of violence or intimidation or threats is too high for us to put this on. And so as a result, the Muslim community are being tarnished because of a minority of religious fundamentalists and cinemas are not allowed to then put on things that other people want to be able to watch. Yes. This censorship, that it, well, the, the, the atmosphere of censorship, um, which basically if you're talking about, take for example since 1988, um, it does appear to have been internalised. I mean, to the extent people say, oh well we've you know, you hear this a lot. Um, oh, well, we sort of, uh, we've moved on and, and that wouldn't happen anymore. You sort of think, well, no, because basically people now keep their mouth shut. I mean, would you, do you think that is a true picture I mean, as I paint it there? I think there's some truth to that. I think when we look at when uh, the fatwa was initially um, uh, put out against uh, Salman, we had some politicians uh, uh, saying that Salman perhaps should take some of the blame for why this is happening. And, and I think that's uh, disgraceful, especially in a Western liberal democracy. We should be standing up for um, those who are, who, or who want to express themselves and to push back against uh, religious uh, theocrats, yeah. uh, such as those uh, who are in Iran. And so there is some truth to that. And when we think about how that's progressed over time. Well, it hasn't progressed. What we've seen, it's regressed over time. A classic example, and the most uh, recent one, is that of Batley Grammar School. A teacher, all he had done was shown a caricature of the Prophet Muhammad. Now, what happened as a result of that is that we saw a bunch of religious fundamentalists who were there uh, picketing him, and we even had, in fact, a charity naming him um, on social media. Uh, the, the teacher. As a result, that teacher had to go into hiding. Now, we didn't get much pushback from the government at the time. No. Um, 
Uh, I think uh, the right-wing media were very good at actually pushing back against this. The left-wing media were a bit hesitant. They were, it, it appeared that they didn't know where to uh, place their um, position. Uh, should they be with the teacher in terms of uh, um, uh, freedom of expression and to show these uh, sorts of caricatures? Or was it with the fundamentalists who were essentially saying that Muslims can't uh, behave themselves when they see this and therefore we have to actually prevent these things from happening and this then speaks to a bigotry of low expectations and mm. it's quite patronizing mm. to assume that we can't handle ourselves when something offensive is shown in front of us so does that mean actually we'll see that for example you have no problem with say cartoons being shown to, in in the batney case no absolutely not mm. uh, there's no um, child protection issue showing a cartoon so what is the issue the issue is only um, uh, those who are offended who now want to apply their offence to everyone else. So their standards of offence, and that is unfair to anyone else who then wants to see um, this caricature or not yeah. see this caricature. People should have the choice to be able to do that. So if the teacher chooses to show this and a student chooses not to see it, they should be able to leave the classroom. No one mm -hmm. should be forced to look at it, but then no one should be forced not to look at it. And that's the situation that... Um, the relig religious fundamentalists seem to want to take control of. Why do you think it is that, for example, take that school, Badley Grammar School, um, but it, let's face it, it could be a, a whole number of other instances we've had. Um, they wouldn't invite somebody like you along, as it were, to put the other case, would they? I mean, from what I can see, the guys were outside there, pretty much one hands down. The teacher is still in hiding, um, as you said. Virtually, I, well, I, I don't think anyone in the government said anything about it at all. But why don't they have someone like you along and talk about the other way of looking at it? I think um, because they're, they're worried about the tension that it could create, that um, when you've got uh, a Muslim who is uh, standing up for free speech, standing up for freedom of expression against then a mob who are completely uh, against that, this c creates tension and they don't want to be part of that, um, that sort of debate, even though by nature they are part of it and they have to take a stand against it. And so, and I think that's one of the issues that we're facing is that there are voices, um, um, progressive voices within the Muslim community who want to stand up for free speech, who are not being given that platform. I mean, of course, uh, New Culture Forum are, are giving me that platform and that's fantastic. But then what about some of these um, platforms on the left where we find um, lots of um, Muslims who um, subscribe to that um, um, uh, political ideology? We don't hear those voices and we need to hear more of those voices. We need to um, uh, amplify the other side because at the moment we're only seeing the fundamentalist side. Yeah, yeah. So how would you characterize yourself then, once you can, <laughs> in on this sphere, on on this uh, this line of uh, from fundamentalism right through to what to you call it progressive Muslim? What? I'm I'm not entirely sure what to call it, but um, I I mean I call myself a British Muslim, and uh, okay. I fully subscribe to the British values uh, that. Uh, we, we have, um, I, um, whether it's free speech, um, freedom of expression, uh, the rule of law. Um, I'm perfectly comfortable with having non-Muslim friends. Um, and so I don't bring cultural baggage or from, from other areas uh, where some of the, these fundamentalists do. So 
Um, it, 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 in fact, there, there are lots of progressive Muslims who don't uh, consider homosexuality to negate um, their belief in Islam or, or belief in God, because um, within Islam, the, there's, there's only one way of uh, coming into Islam, and that's to declare faith in one God and that the Prophet Muhammad is the, the messenger. Anything beyond that cannot necessarily negate your, um, your identity as a Muslim. Mm -hmm. And so we do know that there's lots of progressive Muslims who think like this, but we just don't hear them enough. Yes. Where does this leave you? Does this put you in a dangerous position at all? Potentially. Um, I, I, I get a lot of abuse on social media. Um, from? From uh, fundamentalists, from Islamists, uh, from those on the, on the left um, who believe I'm giving cover to the extreme right wing, for example. So some of, some of the abuse that I get is uh, I'll be called coconut or um, uh, a traitor to, to Muslims. Um, and this is essentially uh, falling into the territory of identity politics. Mm. So um, they're, uh, they're happy to have a brown person there to uh, essentially propagate white supremacist ideas yeah. and, and things like that. So as a result of that, then people are then uh, making threats and uh, um, on social media. And so I have to be very careful where I go, who I speak to, um, uh, who I see because you never know who could be out there and, um, th and this is a threat that um, a lot of those um, of us who are in that progressive scene who uh, consider ourselves Muslims even though others don't um, who are uh, facing. Oh I see so you mean basically the they're saying to you, you're not even a Muslim, really. There are cases where they mm. are, and it's known as uh, takfiring. So takfiring means to excommunicate. This is um, this is an essential tool within the Salafi um, jihadi ideology. This is something that ISIS um, actually use, and um, Al Qaeda were um, said of ISIS that even you're too extreme for us when you're using this and applying this to some Sunni Muslims. So. Um, so the idea is that if you're able to uh, declare someone a non-Muslim, then that person becomes a legitimate target. Right. And so this is what some of these um, individuals are seeking to do. I see. Um, it's one thing that, that uh, in the feedback we get in the, from the show when we talk about these issues, um, and that is you use the term Islamism, um, um, and I suppose you would say that sort of religious fundamentalist and Islamist, roughly the same, I suppose. There is a kind of, if you like, violent Islamist and a non-violent Islamist. So in fact, would it be right to say that the people who try to close down a film are non-violent Islamists, would you say? To an extent, yes. Uh, so there are actually three types of Islamists. First, um, Islamism is uh, distinct from Islam. Islamism is a political ideology, whereas Islam is a religion of uh, peace. Um, and within Islamism, there are three types. There are the violent types. So those are the ISIS, Al-Qaeda, uh, Boko Haram, those sorts of people. Then you've got the non-violent Islamists. And so these guys, they uh, believe everything that the violent Islamists do, but they don't carry out anything uh, in terms of uh, violence. And then you've got the participationist Islamists. And so these guys actually use the machinery of democracy to achieve their aims. Now, the violent Islamists are the ones who are essentially those who are out picketing and using that uh, violent rhetoric to have things closed down. Right. And, and they stop at the point of violence. 
But that's not to say that they don't subscribe to violence. They're quite happy for someone else to do that uh, for them if it's going to achieve their aims. So that's essentially, so those people who um, are, are seeking to shut down um, the, the Lady of Heaven, yeah. uh, I would consider them to be non-violent Islamists. Yes, I see. Um, because one of the things it is brought up, and I, I'm, I'm sure you've discussed this many times, is some people will say using the term Islamism is a, is a cop-out. It's actually Islam. What, what would you say to that? I think uh, that, well, look, Islamism comes from Islam. Mm. So you can't deny that. And uh, so Islamism, because it's a political ideology, they draw from Islamic tradition and uh, Islamic teachings, and they hope to use that to then implement it into uh, their way of life in terms of uh, not just their private self, but also the public. And so when we think about uh, Islamism, especially in the West, what they're hoping to do is to make society Sharia compliant. Now, Sharia means, um, the, the root word of Sharia is to mean way, a way of doing things. Yeah. And for them, it's the Islamic way of doing things. And one of the Islamic way of doing things is to prevent people from uh, critiquing or ridiculing religion or the Prophet Muhammad. And so they're hoping to achieve a Sharia compliant um, uh, um, freedom of expression and speech that is uh, in line with their beliefs and the only way that they can do that is by uh, essentially threatening people um, from uh, actually being able to express themselves. Do you think that uh, when you look at the British establishment um, I'm sure you have lots of interaction don't you I mean if you're you know associated with Henry Jackson Society etc and your work if you look at the people who run the government and I get the impression that they are quite ignorant, actually, of various different um, nuances, uh, if that's the right word. Do you think that's the case? I mean, you know, if they don't say anything about a teacher in the Batley Grammar School, if they don't really make comments about some other thing that might have happened, it's because they're worried about offending all Muslims. Is that right? There's some truth to that, um, but it's there's something deeper to this um, and this goes to something known as uh, community tension. I remember recently uh, a few years ago there was a, um, a Christian um, woman from Pakistan and she was seeking refuge here in mm -hmm. Britain. Mm -hmm. um, she wasn't able to come here and the reason the government gave was because it would cause community tension and so the question then I have then for the government is either you cannot handle the community tension, you cannot control it, or uh, you've just prioritised them over someone who needed refuge. So there, there, there is, it's, so there's two things. One, there's the ignorance. So mm. sometimes they're aware of it and they're not doing it, anything about it. And the other thing is that even when they are aware of it, they still don't seem to be able to do enough about it. And so we're in a situation now where the government um, seem to be uh, on the back foot against some of these Islamist extremists. You see, you say that they don't seem to be able to do anything about it. Uh, I'd agree. Um, it's a question of why they don't. In, in the sense that the government, when it wants to do things, can move remarkably fast. Um, is it just that there's cowardice that, I mean, for the same reason that, you know, the situation in Rotherham was allowed to go on for a long time, all of those sorts of things, is simply because they are more frightened, actually, as if you put it off community tension. It's as simple as that. 
I, th I think so. I think um, because th th they don't want to. Um, we we had riots in in the eighties, uh, yeah. the race riots, and you know it was very difficult to deal with that. We had riots then in the early two thousands uh, in in those northern towns yeah. uh, again, race riots, and so. They've, they've had bad experiences of, of these sorts of riots and, and they're worried that similar riots are going to happen and they don't know what to do with it. And so that means that actually the, the influence that they have in the community is quite weak and they also um, need to rely on the community to know that, that actually that's not going to happen. What's, you know, the thing is, when we, even when we look at lockdown, they were able to lock down the whole country so quickly yet they can't seem to yes. contain a problem like this. Exactly. And so I, I don't know what, what the block is and uh, they need to show some courage. Well, you know, I think it's that. You've just said it. Um, I think that they are cowards um, because they, they absolutely could. Um, I wonder, where do you stand on the term Islamophobia? Would you say that it is, I mean, do you think this thing is, exists? Or would you say, like the late Christopher Hitchens, that it's a made-up term which is basically there to stop people criticising Islam? I think there's, um, I think it's a mixture of, of both. Right. We know that um, anti-Muslim bigotry, hatred, prejudice exists, so people are treating Muslims uh, differently because they're Muslims. But when it comes to Islamophobia, and there is a definition that we, we currently have at the moment that's uh, gained a lot of momentum from all of the political parties except the Conservative Party who are uh, seeking to um, define their own. Um, this definition that we currently have is very problematic. It seems to be rooted in critical race theory, mm. which essentially says that all uh, Muslims uh, belong to a race. And uh, there are some problems with this because what we know, and I uh, mentioned this earlier, that anyone can become a Muslim just by reciting the Shahada, the, the Declaration of Faith. And then all you have to do is to um, reject the Shahada to then no longer be a Muslim. And so you can be white, but you cannot not be white at the same time. You can't yeah. uh, come out of your race. So the idea that you can um, conflate race with religion is palpably false. But it's not just that. Even when we look at the Lady of Heaven uh, as an example, the Islamophobia definition that uh, we currently have actually ignores uh, uh, sectarianism. So you have Sunni Muslims who, or some Sunni Muslims who hate some Shia Muslims because they're Shia, because they have a different theology. And so if, it's, if we're talking about critical race theory and it's about um, uh, colour and whiteness and power, privilege, then, yeah. privilege, um, then how can one group um, who essentially look the same be racist to another group who essentially look the same? One group can't be white and the other group everyone else. Uh, and so it ignores that. So there are lots of problems with this uh, definition of Islamophobia. And so when we're, uh, and, and the question that you asked is, does it exist? Well, according to th this definition, I'm not entirely sure what exists. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. just very muddled up. Yes. I, I mean, I've always seen it's quite clear to me that, you know, it, Islamophobia is incorrect simply because it's a religion. I think you've just made that point, not a race. And, and that basically, therefore, everyone should be able to criticize religion. Um, that's the way we've kind of grown up uh, in, in democracies like ours. Um, do you think, because it's it sort of crept in a little bit lately, that Islamists use the whole new woke language? Is that happening? Uh, I kind of heard it a little bit around the edges. 
Yes, I do think uh, I do think so. They're they're using uh, this language uh, where um, they're essentially using um, the the language of diversity and inclusion, and they're hoping to create Muslims into this homogenous block. And so, um, all Muslims should think the same. All Muslims should look the same and speak the same and believe in the same thing. Right. And um, and this this woke language is very much the same. And so, uh, for example, uh, we know that uh, in in the gender wars, for, um, uh, people are finding it difficult to now describe what a m woman is. But Islamists, what they're what they're hoping to do now is that they're trying to do the reverse and be and say, well, actually, you can describe what a Muslim is. A Muslim should look like this. So a Muslim woman should be uh, wearing a hijab or or a niqab or, or or something like that. So they're using that language or or the tactics, at least that we've seen in the in in this woke ideology and identity politics, to then apply it to themselves and to achieve some of those aims that they that they're hoping to get. I see, I see. How did you start out, you know, it's led you to this point, actually, you personally, I mean, you know, you're, um, I mean, you grew up here, didn't you? So <clears throat> when did these issues start to really become important to you? I think the turning point wasn't uh, the Salman Rushdie thing, because I was only six years old at the time. I, I, yeah. I wasn't cognizant to, to what was actually going on there. It was actually 9-11 in, in 2001. I was at college and um, in our canteen we had um, um, screens up on, uh, up on the wall and they were showing the, the planes going into the Twin Towers. Where was this? Where was this uh, in? This, this was in London. Yeah. And, um, and when that was happening, there, there was lots of uh, Muslim students there and uh, many of my friends and what they were saying was, yes, you know, they were cheering this on and, and I looked at them and I said, why? And they're like, you know, it's America, who cares? We don't care. And I couldn't understand what led them to that. But um, and my response was that, well, America's not going to take this lying down. They're going to do something about it. And, um, and not just that, my response was, what about the victims in, in, in those towers? But they didn't seem to care. And this was really worrying for me because um, Although we had the Salman Rushdie event, we also had um, lots of um, people going to Afghanistan and fi uh, fighting as part of the Mujahideen uh, against uh, the, the occupation from, from Russia. And so they saw them as freedom fighters. And so essentially they, and, and bin Laden was of course involved uh, in that. And, um, and so they saw this as a heroic point mm. for, for, for them. And um, this really led me to reconsider what was happening within my community, um, within some of my uh, my own um, peers, and what can we do about it? So as a result, I started reading up a lot about um, why this stuff was taking place, and um, which then led me to then start working in this area. So I mm. used to work in education, and now work in in terrorism and and extremism, and um, and what I saw there hasn't necessarily dissipated now. We still see yeah, those yeah, elements yeah. of extremism and they're being given a free pass and something needs to be done about that. Um, you said you were in uh, education. What were you teaching? Or? So I was a teacher, yes. I was a teacher for over 10 years. Um, I, I taught music. Um, oh, really? What? Uh, 
in uh, London schools? Yes, in, in uh, London secondary schools. Um, and uh, uh, I, taught, I taught music, I taught drama, uh, even taught a bit, bit of maths, which I was terrible at. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I was already, um, and, and many of my community tend to go into, into law or into yes, accountancy. Yes. So it was quite different for me to go into uh, an industry where I don't see, you don't see a brown Muslim, devout Muslim, in fact, who prays five times a day and, you know, fasts and, and gives to charity. So it was really interesting to see that. And, and, but I was very much welcomed in, in those spaces. And, and, I was, and you know, that's, that's something that I think um, we don't find in some Muslim communities where they're very welcoming of necessarily the other. Right, right. You spoke quite recently as well about um, the situation that we might face in our prisons, right? Um, now, again, this is something that's sort of glancingly referred to. It becomes a bit of an issue and then it sort of just goes away, you know. What, what would you, you would say it's pretty dire, right? Yes, it is very dire. There was a recent report that came out from, uh, by Jonathan Hall QC. Yeah. Um, it was a government um, a report on um, Islamists in prison. And uh, what he found was that Islamists are actually controlling some elements of prison and making them Sharia compliant. Essentially, they were making them uh, Muslim friendly or Muslim focused and Islam friendly. And so what, they were, uh, what he found in the evidence is that um, uh, prison staff would uh, uh, distribute leadership to emirs. Emirs are essentially commanders within um, uh, um, an army, but within the prison there would be prison emirs. So these these guys would be controlling the Muslim inmates. Right. And um, and this is problematic because the distribution of power from the prison staff to these so-called uh, uh, emirs, these so-called commanders then actually relieves the prison staff of their duty of actually being able to control the prison. And so what's then uh, the prison for? What they're essentially doing is rewarding these prisoners and uh, instead of punishing them, which is why they're there. And this was a catastrophic, catastrophic failure that we were finding in um, our, our prison system. Yeah. And so um, it wasn't just that. There were also elements where um, some Islamist extremists were... Um, uh, essentially intimidating staff uh, using threats of violence uh, to get their way so uh, whether it, so Muslims are uh, can pray five times a day but it's not essential for them to pray in a congregation five times a day mm. but this is what some of these Islamists were seeking to do they were they wanted concessions that no other um, religious uh, community were getting within those prisons so being able to come out of their cells to pray in a congregation because that was their right mm. when it's not essential for them to need to do that. They could quite easily pray within their prison cell. So it was quite dire. Now, not just that, um, the last four completed terrorist attacks that have taken place have taken place from those who were in prison. And so what we're finding is that the prisons are actually failing at what they're meant yeah. to be doing, which is preventing some of these guys from carrying out these attacks. So once they're released from prison, they're out there carrying out uh, the attacks. So the Streatham attack was uh, mm. someone who was, um, who was recently in prison, Fishmongers Hall, and also the Reading attack. Um, and the other attack was one that took place within prisons. And what's interesting about this one the one that took place within prison is that that's the first terrorist attack to take place within a prison within, yeah. and and this is uh, extraordinary to see what's actually happening 
But the, th the thing is, it might be the same answer, but when I asked you why do you think this is happening, would it be the same weakness that you talked about before in the authorities? I think so. I think, I think there is a, a, a now, I, I think we're talking about fundamental system, systemic mm. weakness that we have in our, um, in our uh, bodies that are meant to be protecting us. And uh, this has uh, come about through, in my view, at least through an environment where, um, you know, uh, we have to think of um, not offending people yeah, before yeah. actually dealing with an issue. And uh, that then cr creates more and more issues. Yes. And, and when these start compounding, you start seeing uh, systemic flaws and a rot within some of our institutions that are meant to be doing something else but are now at the back foot because they're being held hostage to some of these extremists. I mean, I mentioned, yes, I mean, uh, connected to this really, I talked a little bit before we came on air mm. about this. Um, I mean, what is your view of the PREVENT programme? Because, I mean, <coughs> frankly, it's had a hell of a lot of criticism, either sort of, excuse me, either from the, the uh, from one side, because it's basically too lily-livered, from the other side, basically from people who, essentially don't want anybody to be under any form of surveillance for whatever reason. I mean, what, what, do you think it's effective or not? Well, I think the... the it's all we've got, actually, at the moment. It is. Um, it's, uh, it's the best thing that we've got, and it's a well-intentioned um, initiative that we have. And um, at the beginning, when it first started, it was bound to have some um, flaws and it was bound to ha um, have some mistakes in its implementation. Of course, that's going to happen because we were in a situation, uh, this came about uh, after the 7-7 bombings yeah. where four homegrown uh, terrorists uh, turned their backs on our country and killed 52 of our British citizens and um, over 100, uh, hundreds of people were uh, injured as a result of yeah. this. So we have to think about the context in which it came about. And so we, and that, that gave us the, our first realization that we've got an Islamist extremist problem. And so we had to do something about it. Now PREVENT came about, and PREVENT's not perfect, but it came about as a way to deal with that. Now, as it came about, then you had lots of Islamists who were talking about uh, scrapping it because it unfairly targeted the Muslim community and it was so-called Islamophobic, it was anti-Muslim in nature because um, most of uh, the people who were being referred to were Muslims. But we were in a situation where we didn't know who was an extremist and who wasn't and um, there were examples where I think a child had said I live in a terrorist house and it was interpreted as a yeah. terrorist house even though he said terrorist and so they would amplify these examples as look this is Islamophobic. We know that the most referrals currently to prevent are for the extreme right wing and actually there's a decrease in um, uh, uh, referrals for Islamist uh, extremism. Now there's two reasons why that could be the case. Mm. It could be that the far right are the fastest rising uh, threat that we're currently facing which is why we're seeing a high uh, number of referrals for extreme right wing. Or it could be that we're sh uh, there's some sense of cowardice now and that we're a bit scared to refer Muslims to the PREVENT programme for being um, uh, accused of Islamophobia. So yes. that's, that's something that we're facing. Um, so 
I don't think it's Islamophobic. I think it's a well-intentioned um, initiative. And I think anyone who thinks that there is an alternative needs to come up with it and it needs to come under scrutiny. And uh, it can't just be that, oh, it's better because it's not Islamophobic. Well, we don't know that yours isn't going to be any better. You need to show that it's going to work in practice. Oh, uh, of course, I, I think that, you, you know, you, you said uh, it's with preventive mode is either one thing or the other because there's been this supposed uh, increased reporting of uh, right wing extreme. Yes, that has happened. Um, I would incline to go with your latter view. Um, you know, when I've had any contact with uh, police about preventive, whatever, it's, it seems to me that they are, how should I put it? They want to equivocate. They want to somehow take the onus off the fact that the vast majority of attacks are Islamist. And so basically, it's almost like they almost overplay the, uh, the right-wing part of it. Um, and I think, as you say, that there are also cases where um, people report actually what you wouldn't even consider to be extreme statements, actually. But these suddenly become far-right. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What would you say is the lookout in the next 10 years when it comes to the terrorist threat, when it comes to the terrorist Islamist threat? Are you, do you think we have, are we in the same position we were 7-7? I don't think we're in the same position. I think we're in a unique position now. I think the position's different slightly. Uh, in terms of terrorist attacks, uh, they're less complicated now. So with the 7-7, there was months of planning that took place uh, and they had to learn how to create these bombs and to know when to detonate them, how and where. Uh, when we look at some of the terrorist attacks that have taken place now, they are very much low effort terrorist uh, attacks. So uh, it's, whether it's the use of a, a van to run people over or the use of a knife, um, to do that. Um, so we're, we're seeing a different type, um, not necessarily type actually, a different way of uh, carrying out terrorist attacks. Yeah. But the threat from terrorism hasn't declined. In fact, it's increased and we've seen more and more uh, terrorist attacks. In fact, uh, uh, from the period of 2001 up to 2019, we saw above average uh, mm. deaths as a result of terrorism compared to um, any other period. Uh, and this is excluding, of course, Lockerbie and um, the, uh, uh, the IRA when we, when we were engaged in the, in the troubles. So we have a unique threat, but our threat isn't just that violent threat, it's also that non-violent threat. And so when we're thinking about the non-violent uh, non Islamists and the participationist Islamists, and the, the, the latter are the ones who use the machinery of democracy. They use that language, they use the votes, um, they use um, free speech to be able to propagate their ideas. So essentially they're using uh, the tools that we have against mm -hmm. us. And so that's the threat that we're now facing is that we're, we are facing a non-violent threat and they're finding allies within th that woke um, uh, uh, wing of people, uh, the identity politics, those sorts of people who are trying to cancel people by calling them racist or Islamophobic overplaying things so uh, you, you could have um, someone who's white and uh, um, a conservative and uh, he might say well I believe in the institution of a family well automatically he's a white supremacist mm. so it's, it's those overplaying of uh, some statements and yeah. uh, and things like that 
that we're now seeing and it's how does it manifest is it going to manifest necessarily into uh, acts of violence or is it going to manifest itself into something else whether it's cancel culture or um, people just self-censoring so we are facing a threat in different ways and I think we need to work out a sensible and intelligent approach to deal with it um, absolutely but um, there's nothing forthcoming from the party political establishment I think you'd agree would you Yes, I, I, I think I would. In, uh, I mean, the, the online harms bill uh, mm. seems to be an overreach uh, in terms of tackling some of what we're talking about, um, mm. uh, because it essentially uh, limits some aspects of free speech and, and freedom of expression. And one of the key things uh, f that terrorists want to do is that they want uh, governments to be um, to overreach in how they deal with threats that they're uh, uh, faced against. And so the online harm bills, in my view, is one of those ways that uh, instead of uh, um, responding to extremists in a proportionate way, this is now a disproportionate way which is limiting some of those allies that we have yes, who, yeah. who could actually take th some of these guys on. Yeah. Well, look, Wasik, thank you very, very much, you know, for today and coming on. Um, it's great to, uh, to speak to you. Um, and uh, is there anything else people can do, do you think, when it comes to Salman Rushdie, is there any other way in which they can sort of uh, make their voices known, you know, to sort of, people say, we've got to stand uh, with Salman Rushdie. And, and it's absolutely right, we have got to. But, okay, you had this event. But how can people generally do it, do you think? Just as a way, if you could just think of any... Well, I think, um, I think we need to especially uh, online, when um, Charlie Hebdo, when the attacks yeah. against Charlie Hebdo happened, we saw the hashtag, Je suis Charlie. Even with Black Lives Matter, we saw the hashtag Black Lives Matter or BLM. And so we need to have things like that, these symbolic um, um, uh, events taking place where we have Je suis Salman, some, something like that. We need to show that actually we are standing with him and against a minority of fundamentalists who are seeking to do something that is completely against our British values of free speech. And one of the arguments that they always make is free speech is not absolute. Well, nobody has ever said it's absolute. We have laws here against hate speech and speech against violence. There are boundaries. And if you want to, and I think what we need to do is we need to invite some of these guys onto a level playing field and to debate them where they get to say what they want and we can actually change their minds because I do believe we can change their minds with with logic and with reason because all they bring is emotion and um, that's not enough to uh, convince everyone else to your um, point of view but we can do something to convince others to ours. Would you uh, have you debated these guys in public? No, I, I haven't. Um, I, don't, I don't think they will share a, a platform with me, <laughs> potentially. Right, okay. uh, I don't know. Uh, but I'd be happy to debate them. Um, but I think we, we need to get the rules of our debate right. And, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't allow them to shout us down uh, because we should either shout back at them or we sit down and, and uh, be, behave in, uh, in a civilised way, in, in a British way, and, and uh, actually do this um, properly. Thank you again, once again, we'll see you very much. Uh, that's it for, so what you're saying is this week, we shall see you next time. Thank you very much. Hello, if you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below 
or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you. Thank you.